Is climate change stressing you out? Climate One Conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. On today's show, we revisit two discussions about maintaining our well-being in the face of a destabilized climate. Whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not, everyone is now engaged in some form or has some form of climate anxiety. One way to cope with depression, as many studies show, is to spend time reconnecting with the natural world. Just remember to leave your screens at home. The impact on mental health, the impact on creativity, relationship building, all these things happen easier in nature without a phone. But these days, many people, especially children, are disconnected from nature. Access to the great outdoors or even a park to run and play in often isn't available to underserved communities. If every child is going to have a nature experience, then every child needs to have a tree near them. And so we can't have all the trees and all the green in one part of town and not in another part of town. Later on, we'll revisit a Climate One discussion about finding ways to bring people to nature and vice versa. But first, we talk with three experts on climate psychology. Clinical psychologist Leslie Davenport likens her patients' feelings about global warming to the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, sadness, bargaining have its versions of what it might look like in the climate world. Really what we're talking about is any kind of loss, loss of identity, loss of lifestyle, loss of environmental, can trigger a very similar process. Davenport is author of Emotional Resiliency in the Era of Climate Change, a clinician's guide. She works as a clinical psychotherapist in San Francisco and Tacoma, Washington. Renee Lertzman is a climate engagement strategist and author of the book Environmental Melancholia, Psychoanalytic Dimensions of Engagement. And Bryant Welch is a clinical psychologist and the author of State of Confusion, Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American Mind. Even those of us who care deeply about climate change can find it difficult to bring up the topic in conversation. Renee Lertzman explains why. It's an incredibly challenging topic to talk about because our feelings, our um, investment in the issue runs so high, it's urgent, it's time sensitive, it has all those attributes that make it incredibly difficult to talk about um, in a productive way. And so what I've learned over years of studying with all kinds of clinicians and motivational interviewers is that the key, I think, to talking about climate change is to recognize and tune into what the others might be feeling and thinking. And so it really is more about our, the quality of how we show up and how we invite the other to reflect and speak to whatever it is they might be experiencing about the issue and learn how to hold off on pushing our own anxiety and sense of urgency onto the other, which will often be what the person is mainly responding to. And then you get into these charged dynamics. So the first thing I say is, you know, it's really about listening, but I don't, I don't want to minimize what that really means. There's an internal process as far as how do we enter into these interactions, whether you're a company or whether you're an individual or an organization, how can we have compassionate ways of communicating about climate. And, and I think that being able to tune in and listen and reflect and, and bring in that quality of, of again, just um, 
a sort of an acceptance, which paradoxically, I think, leads people into entering the topic in a new and different way. Right. And so Leslie Davenport, uh, often there's this impulse to talking about climate to, to uh, persuade or convince people to yeah. jam a fact or an idea down someone's throat. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I need to convert you right now. Yes. Does that work? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's reminding me of that saying that we um, smashing heads won't open minds. Uh, you know, if it's about opening to new possibilities, new ways of thinking. One thing I want to add is that, um, you know, not everyone that we're going to engage with is on this in the same place, uh, the same level of receptivity. When I was bringing innovative programs into a medical setting, uh, I learned that there was sort of a group of people that no matter what, just weren't interested, weren't listening. There was the ones who agreed totally with the new programming, and then there was this really fertile middle ground. People who didn't quite know about it, were maybe a little skeptical, curious, uh, less familiar. And that just was a really rich area to work with. And that's where a lot of the, you know, the success could be felt of people kind of awakening to it rather than kind of necessarily going for those that just had really closed and latched the door to possibilities. Right. And according to the Yale Six Americas, studies of American public opinion, only 9 to 10% of Americans are just basically mm -hmm. never going to accept it. There's mm -hmm. a big persuadable middle that you can connect yeah. with. It might be through technology, not climate, but there's food, there's ways to connect with people where they are. Yeah. Brian Welch, um, you talk about you know, disassociation and how things, people, is a defensive mechanism that when there's trauma, people disassociate from something that they feel is uh, uncomfortable or painful. How does that apply to climate? Well, I, I think to support what Renee and Leslie are saying, it really helps if you're going to talk to another mind to understand a little bit about the mind. And if you look at the American mind, um, as I have over the last 20 years, it's, it's stunning how much it's deteriorated. <laughs> I, I can see that my need to persuade this audience is <laughs> limited. Uh, but, but if you want to do just a quick test, I, I, I did write a book 10 years ago when I talked about this, and I went back to kind of take a look at it and wrote pretty much the same book, only applied to now. If you want to have a quick litmus test of how the American mind has changed, and, I, and I'm not saying this to be, to be facile, picture George W. Bush, and then picture Donald Trump. Now, I was appalled at George Bush and the way in which the American mind was responding at that time. But now we got Donald Trump. And so if you look at what's happened to the mind, I, I, you know, we, we all feel that the environment has been neglected. I, I think that's probably a safe assumption in this group. But let me tell you, nothing's been as neglected as the American mind. The mind is a very limited instrument to begin with. We've done unbelievable things to it, just like we've done to the environment. And we now have skilled political manipulators who are expert at making us crazier and crazier. So in terms of we have got to understand the mind if we're going to get a rational decision out of it. So I think when you talk about 
listening to people and connecting with their mind. And I think, I think what you're talking about is making a connection with a person yes. which eases their anxiety unbelievably. If you listen to them, you connect with them. Once you connect with them, people are in such desperate shape, they'll get dependent on anything. They got dependent on Donald Trump because he was offering them some profound experience. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I totally agree with it, but I think there is a bigger, there, there's a bigger issue. It's not just the environment. You know, our kids are not safe to go to school. It's, it's a very, you know, we can't, we've got a second amendment and we can't figure out a way to keep guns out of school. So my argument is that we have to, all of these issues have to, we have to be looking at the American mind itself uh, because it's really been abused over the last, over the last 20, 25 years in, in a number of ways. And we'll get talk later a little bit about how climate is a symptom of some broader things and connected to other things. Uh, you mentioned anxiety. Lisa Van Susteren is a Washington, D.C. psychologist who specializes on how people feel about the future of climate impacts. Pre-traumatic stress disorder is a subset of climate anxiety. There is a subset of people who are very focused on future harm and uh, have intrusive thoughts about it and may have had seen their moods and thoughts affected by it. And sometimes they might know they're anxious, but they don't know why. And they will say they can't sleep or they're sleeping too much, they've lost their appetite or they've gained weight. Certainly the angry outbursts, the fears, uh, the ongoing feeling of dread, of hopelessness, these are all signs. I have no doubt now, especially uh, considering recent events, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not, everyone is now engaged in some form or has some form of climate anxiety. Lisa Van Susteren, the Washington, D.C. psychologist. Um, Leslie Davenport, is that true? Do you agree that everyone has some level of climate anxiety? Whether, whether they realize it or not? Yeah, exactly. That's the thing, whether they realize it or not. I'm starting to notice in my practice that sometimes people come in with ambient anxiety. They're just more distressed, even if they haven't always connected the dots about why. And that's what I'm trying to do is also introduce it more into the mental health field to bring those questions in and um, help people see where that is. Um, you know, and related to this, you know, it feels like all of you who are here are here because of your interest in this already. And um, that as we learn how to talk about it more effectively, I just want to introduce the idea that all of us can take a leadership role in whatever sphere of influence your life lives in. We don't all have to write books. We don't all have to sit up on a stage. But... If we're looking... Or march in a march. Or march in a march, which is wonderful, and I do that too. But yeah, to redefine what is leadership and to redefine what is advocacy, that if you're uh, responding and looking through the lens of we are interconnected and I stand for a just and sustainable future, how will that influence the words that come out of your mouth and the things that you choose to do and the lifestyle you choose to lead? And that will be a guide that can very powerfully ripple out mm. in a lot of directions. I want to, can I follow can I on that? I think that what you're saying relates to, are we all, is everyone experiencing eco-anxiety? 
um, what I've noticed is the tendency for those who are very engaged and concerned is to have a perception or an assumption that a lot of people don't care because if they did care more, then they would be doing what I'm doing, which is coming to events like this and and doing the various things we try to do. And I think that's a um, that's a very it's an inaccurate assumption that for a lot of people, this is sort of in that like you said, an, an ambient kind of anxiety. And I think one of the most powerful ways we can express the leadership that I, I think you're talking about is by sparking different kinds of interactions and conversations in our lives mm -hmm. to, to create the context where we have permission to go there, to name, to talk about. I mean, evidence-based psychology supports the fact that having conversations and interactions is the driving force for behavior change. And so when people say to me, well, that all sounds great, Renee, we don't have time to have conversations. That sounds very kind of not scalable. We don't need talk, we need action. Yeah, exactly. It makes zero sense to me. For one thing, <laughs> humans are social beings and we are interacting all the time in our organizations, our schools, our churches, our our social media, whatever, there's, we are interactive social beings. The quality of that interaction makes all the difference. And if more of us were skilled and tuned into how to do that more effectively, and again, I think it comes back to compassionate co communication. Even if you're running a political campaign, it can be empathetic and it can be compassionate, which I think relates to Brian's work, right? Which is yes. the lack of that gross kind of generalization, not to be too simplistic, has led to what we're seeing, which is that um, there's this fear and anxiety that's just been simmering under the surface. Well, what if we actually start yeah. communicating in a more skillful way? I, you know, I, I think it is astonishing. I mean, it's startling. I've been doing psychotherapy now for 40 plus years, and I'm always, it's, it's a constantly renewing realization that when people are listened to, it is a very unusual experience for them and, and a very powerful experience for them. Yeah. And uh, the, the human connection that comes from that is being torn asunder all across our society. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, families are broken up. <laughs> there, there are now more children who grow up missing one of their biological parents than grow up with both parents. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the dissociation, disconnection, and ultimately the dehumanization that results from that is astonishing. Uh, and it's not, it's not just anxiety and trauma. Mm -hmm. A lot of it has happened. Uh, you know, I think Renee, more than anyone, opened my awareness to, uh, you know, to the environmental melancholia with the look at what, what's happened in Green Bay. Uh, in terms of environmental deterioration. It's depression. There is loss. Mm -hmm. And when you connect with someone in these kinds of conversations that uh, environmentalists are, are now talking about, I think very, very wisely, it's, it is stunning the impact it has on the person being listened to. I mean, what you all are doing for me right now is wonderful. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that we need to learn how to listen, that these are skills we can actually be supporting and cultivating in ourselves. I mean, 
HuffPo did a listening tour around the country last summer, I think, and I went out and did a training with them, which struck me as very odd because they were journalists, and I would have thought, okay, that's what they do, but they actually, we, we need support to learn how to listen, especially in such charged, you know, um, environments. So um, what we live in a culture of avoidance, you know, take a pill, distract yourself, don't, don't feel that grief or pain. So I want you, uh, Leslie Davenport, to, to tell us about the climate grief cycle, the five stages of, of climate grief that you, you write about. Well, first, I just want to clarify that sometimes when we think about grief, because uh, some of the early models, like with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, were developed around when someone dies. And that really what we're talking about is any kind of loss, loss of identity, loss of lifestyle, loss of environmental, you know, the degradation we're talking about can trigger a very similar process. And so I was overlaying what that looks like uh, when it relates to struggling with the losses that are around climate change. And truthfully, it's less important to look at the stages as it is to recognize that there is a purposefulness to the feelings. There's a sanctity to pain. It's kind of like if there's a pain in our body, it's telling us something that we need to attend to. If a signal light comes on in our car, it's saying, hey, look, something's going on here. And as you were saying, in our culture, we tend to shut down and want to erase the pain. And not that we want to reside there, but we need to recognize what's the message, which helps us move through these different ways that it shows up. And so, you know, denial, anger, sadness, bargaining have its versions of what it might look like um, in the climate world. Um, but the most important part is underneath that, making room for the emotional landscape that accompanies this experience so that we can attend to what's happening with more of ourselves instead of investing so much energy at keeping the feelings at bay. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about exploring climate psychology. Coming up, helping children take charge of their feelings. I think it's vital that we, we really work on the narrative around, look, no matter who you are and where you are, you know, you absolutely have a role to play. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about ways to cope with our anxieties about climate change. My guests are climate engagement strategist Renee Lertzman and clinical psychologist Leslie Davenport and Bryant Welch. Changes that threaten their world can be especially scary for children. Many of us find it hard to look young people in the eye and tell them everything will be okay when we're not so sure ourselves. Leslie Davenport says the best approach is to be direct and authentic. The main thing I would say, I, I don't feel like I have the answers to all of that. I think we're discovering that as we go. But this idea of building resiliency in from early, early on, there, luckily there are some schools starting to include things like mindfulness programs mm -hmm. are becoming much more common, not necessarily all around the environmental issues, but just that capacity to be present with 
uh, thoughts and feelings as they arise rather than just being sucked into them. The earlier those are learned, the easier it is to build that and rely on that more consistently. So that's certainly mm -hmm. a step in the right direction. Mindfulness and uh, yeah, those, those going on. And sorry, just one other thing, you know, just in general in psychotherapy and psychology, whenever there is helplessness, hopelessness, the um, one of the antidotes is to empower toward being active toward change, towards the things you want. So there are ch child versions of doing that too. And I think to infuse that in, that it's not just information, it's not just coping, but it's how to translate that on a child level. And I, I would just Very add that um, one, one way I've thought about this is the frame or the narrative that we as humans are figuring out how to be humans and how to right. live on the planet. And we haven't always gotten things right. Mm -hmm. And here we are. And we have, I mean, that's kind of my, that's basically my interpretation of our yes. ecological climate crisis is we didn't intend for this to happen, that we yeah. made a lot of progress. There's been a lot of benefits. We've learned a lot. And now we've discovered that this isn't really working too yeah. well. And now we've got this opportunity to do what humans do so well, which is to, to grow and create and innovate and be in, have ingenuity and, you know, to really highlight that this is, and Kim Stanley Robinson, the author, I heard him speak about this a few years ago where he goes even further and says to especially young people, youth, you know, this is your opportunity to make history and, you know, inviting people into a narrative where we're part of something bigger. Um, but it depends on the, the developmental okay, stage. Exactly. But I really love the kind of like, hey, you know, as humans, we're, we're figuring it out and you're part of that, right? Mm -hmm. So again, it's inviting people and all of us into this story. Because the mm -hmm. other danger about, you know, with young people and the kind of projection onto people like Jane Goodall and, you know, oh, that they're out there doing that. They're the eco-heroes. Yes. Here I am in Minnesota, whatever, in some small town, and what can I possibly do? I think it's vital that we, we really work on the narrative around, look, no matter who you are and where you are, you know, you absolutely have a role to play, and it's up to you, you know, to only you really know what that is. Yes. And, um, and to invite that kind of um, reflection on what we can but again, not being like, oh, every little thing. Like we have to. It's a very fine line between that kind of narrative and, you know, oh, get being kind of trite and and simplistic about it. I bought a Prius. I'm good. I'm done. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Address yeah. my conscience. Yeah. Right. Are you on, are you sincerely hopeful, Leslie, that we'll surmount this challenge? <laughs> uh, my hope lies in be being more and more aware as I get older of how much I don't know. There have been so many points in my life where I was sure about something that I've been proven wrong, that that keeps me very open to possibility. I do find it daunting because I track the science pretty closely. Um, so I am happily um, with the jury that's still out and want to be 
very much part of the story. One thing I like that Renee said, you know, sometimes in discussions like this, there's a, a certain segment that says, oh, you know, the earth will be just fine. We're just going to eject all the humans. Um, but I think evolution is more elegant than that. I think humans are part of this and evolutionarily speaking for a kind of purpose and that we are still figuring it out. And that, with that, there's a investment in the hope of what might be possible. Can I just add two quick sure, things? One is the tendency we have to be very binary or dualistic. We tend to ping pong between the optimism and the hope and the despair. And in actuality, we I think intuitively we know that that's not that's not real, right? That it's much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to see us supporting one another and really holding that that place that's sort of in between. Uh -huh. um, the other thing I want to say based on, you know, following on what you said is I want us to acknowledge that at the same time that we're learning more about our ecological impacts and climate crisis, we are also experiencing a tremendous revolution of of insight into the mind. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it's phenomenal. So neuroscience and trauma studies and attachment theory and contemplative practices Absolutely. are exploding. Motivational interviewing. I've been doing a training here in the city that's changed my whole outlook. There is no excuse for the climate and environmental community to not be mining and exploiting these resources as actively as we can. And I think there's such an opportunity to be partnering between these areas of expertise. Not that we all have to go out and become experts in the psychology, yeah. but it's really exciting to me to see how the, that field is growing and presents this opportunity for new kinds of collaborations and synthesis and... Um, Creativity. I, I, I totally agree. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing we got going for us in this is the very act of awareness is a corrective therapeutic act. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think all these things that are encouraging us to be aware, and, and that's a word that we use every day. But when you look at what neuroscientists are doing with the concept of awareness now, you know, there's a saying, if you can name it, you can tame it. Now, there's a lot of optimism in that, and, and uh, it really does produce health, mental health, in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So I, I really think we've got 50 or 60 percent of the variance is right there in that, in that discovery. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I, I've never been more optimistic. I don't know if we're going to survive, but I've never been more <laughs> optimistic. We've been exploring the psychology of climate volatility on Climate One. My guests for this half of the show were climate engagement strategist Renee Lertzman and psychotherapist Leslie Davenport and Bryant Welch. We turn now to the great outdoors with three experts who joined us on the Climate One stage last year. Phil Ginsberg is general manager with the San Francisco Recreation and Parks Department and was recently appointed commissioner of the California State Park and Recreation Commission. Rebecca Johnson is co-director of Citizen Science at the California Academy of Sciences. And Nusheen Razani is director of the Center for Nature and Health at Children's Hospital in Oakland, California. All three maintain that connecting with nature one way or another is essential to both mental and physical health. It's vital to combating the stress and anxiety that our tech-heavy lives foster, especially in young people. Phil Ginsberg sees how many kids are balancing screens and physical activity in the tech mecca of San Francisco. So let's let's start with the, you know, sort of some of the hard reality here, which is 
the, the generation of children that are growing up today uh, is the most sedentary generation of kids in, in our history. Um, uh, it's the first generation that whose life expectancy is probably less than their parents. Mm -hmm. uh, and that stuff about screen time is very true. On average, kids are spending somewhere between five and eight hours a day on their screen and less than an hour a day outside. Not a great recipe. Uh, more optimistically, particularly here in the Bay Area, we are blessed with incredible open space. Within the city limits of, of San Francisco, 18% of our city is, is green space. 18%, that's pretty good. And San Francisco is the first city in the United States of America where 100% of us live within a 10-minute walk of a park. So we have access, and I think, uh, you know, under two or three different mayors who've cared a great deal about this. We've invested five to six hundred million dollars in our park system to try to make it more equitable, more welcoming. Um, and I think we're doing a, a pretty good job of that. But we have a big culture shift to ensure that every child has the opportunity to enjoy nature every day. And that is what we should all be working on. Every child uh, should have a nature based experience every single day day. Hmm. Not just go to a, a park one week in the summer sort of thing. Nusheen Razani, you deal with an underserved population in Oakland that doesn't have the access and has some of the same generational things Phil talked about, sedentary screens, etc. So talk about reaching that underserved population at your work. I, I think that it's important to clarify that um, while there is absolutely a difference in who has access to nature, and sadly, Nature is like many other commodities in our society. It's inequitably distributed. That does not reflect whether or not people want to be in nature. And um, mm. we've, we've spent a lot of time um, talking to and studying and being with um, the patients served at Children's Hospital Oakland who happen to, the majority are on public insurance, which is a marker of being near um, federal poverty line. And definitely people still want to be in nature. And so lack of access is not a marker for whether or not um, people want nature. Um, and so I think when you're talking about how to make people have that desire, which I think is what you're kind of getting to, I usually try to start with folks where they're at. And so in a family that has multiple stressors, whether if you're living in poverty, you may be working several jobs. And actually, this actually applies to all of us. There is so much to do in the modern day that it's really hard to come at a parent and add one more thing on. And so I really don't take the approach that, oh, you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to maximize your health. I really try to come from a place of you have the right to have this thing in your life that will help you cope with the rest of your life. And you have the right to rest. You have the right to spend quality time with each other. And let me see if I can help you find that. Um, and so that's the approach we take. I think that your point about um, equity is an important one. And so I hope that physicians can join in with people like Phil and Parks Districts to also advocate for the fact that, you know, if every child is going to have a nature experience, then every child needs to have a tree near them. And so we can't have all the trees and all the green in one part of town and not in another part of town, but we can all advocate for more equitable um, distribution of nature. 
listening to a Climate One conversation about combating stress by getting back to nature. Coming up, city kids meet the great outdoors. This is a population that may not flinch at a gunshot, that are used to concrete and asphalt, have seen all kinds of awful stuff that doesn't really scare them very much. And you bring them up to the woods and they just become kids again. <laughs> That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We've been talking about getting outside in the digital age with Phil Ginsburg of the San Francisco Recreation and Parks Department, Dr. Nusheen Razani of UCSF Children's Hospital, and Rebecca Johnson of the California Academy of Sciences. We may think that unplugging from technology is the only way to have a nature experience, but Rebecca Johnson believes that our screens can also be used to help us engage with the natural world around us, and she's got an app for that. Um, through my work at the California Academy of Sciences, where I co-direct citizen science, um, we design programs and try to work with lots of partners all over the city and the state and the world to um, figure out ways to connect people to nature and at the same time um, help them by using this platform called iNaturalist, an app and a website, um, to make biodiversity observations. And so those observations, like speaking as a scientist, those observations are really important for understanding and doing really good science and um, furthering conservation. But at the same time, um, this tool is a way to connect people to the natural world. And sometimes that sounds a little, a little counterintuitive. Um, but you know, people are inherently curious and having this app and tool that encourages them to be curious and take pictures of what they're seeing, whether or not they know what it is and knowing that there's kind of a space where you can take a picture of a plant and you might not know what it is, but if you take a good enough picture, um, the app and then people online, a community of people will help you learn what it is, is a way to foster curiosity and at the same time use that tool that can sometimes be really isolating, but to connect you to a community of people. Um, and all of our events and the things that we run use this app as a tool, but it also has a huge um, in-person communi community building. There's a part of it that is in-person community building. So we bring people together in places that matter to them to help discover and document biodiversity together. And so we bring people together that may not have met, but share a love of usually of a place. Um, and so they can discover and explore together. And it's, it might sometimes be through a screen, but usually the screen is kind of helping the experience. It's a little different than just being isolated by the phone in between them. Rasheen Razani, uh, there's a professor at the University of Utah named David Strayer. Uh, you referred me to uh, his work. I watched his TEDx uh, talk. He talks about, he's done research about human brains, 20 minutes in science. So tell us about his research and what he's found with people in nature with their phone and without their phone. Sure. Well, I think in general, and this is both the work of David Strayer and many others, if you, if you take an urban person and you 
you put them in the forest, within a few minutes, you'll see improvement in stress. And so you'll see improvements in cortisol, in heart rate, in blood pressure. Um, once you get to around 20 minutes, you'll see improvements in attention span. Um, after an hour, you'll see more physical activity. Um, and then 90 minutes, they've shown that depression goes down. And then when you spend even longer time in nature, and this is one of the studies that Dr. Strayer did where he actually hooked people up to EEG machines while they were backpacking in the wilderness. Um, and he, you know, he held, he, they had no technology at all. And he seemed, Except the EEG machine. Except the head, that's yeah. so true. They, but what he found is that there seems to, around day three, there's a little bit of a tipping point where your creativity is really maximized hmm. and um, your cognitive ability goes up. Um, he has also done another study where he looked at um, the changes in brain waves in nature, and then what if you go into nature with your phone? He did show that some of the benefit went away yeah. with the phone. And I think as a pediatrician, one thing that I'm also, and you brought this up, concerned about is parents and parental distraction. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the emotional attachment that happens between a parent and a child when a parent actually looks a child in the eye and mirrors their facial expression, that, that whole interaction is key to the emotional development of the child. And so when both parties are fixated on a screen instead of each other, there is a loss of actually what is not optional, what is actually essential to the development of a human being, which is having your parent mirror your emotions. And so I think, except for iNaturalist, <laughs> we, we, we need to be aware of our, you know, of the fact that we might be missing out on really enjoying nature together if we're doing it through a screen yet. Yeah. Phil Ginsburg, uh, there are people, uh, juveniles on probation that go to Yosemite. Tell us about that program. Um, we run a really, really great program called the Teen Outdoor Experience. It's a partnership, a multi-agency partnership, but it's, uh, we, we manage a property near Hetch Hetchy called Camp Mather. Maybe some of you have, have yeah. been there. Uh, it is a place where there is no cell service and there is no Wi-Fi. Mm. Think about that mm. for just a second. <laughs> and it is paradise. Um, and, you know, picking up on Nusheen's, uh, you know, apt uh, remark about the equitable distribution of opportunities like that. It has historically not been a place where we have seen that many people of color and that many people from underserved communities. It's, it's beloved uh, among much of San Francisco, but, but we've made a concerted effort to give kids who don't know about it or wouldn't normally have a chance to get up there to get up there. So the program uh, works with kids who touch our juvenile probation system. Uh, and it involves the juvenile uh, probation department, the police department, Department of Children, Youth and Family, and, and my staff. And we bring up every year about 70 kids um, for about five days. And what's amazing is that this is a population that uh, probably wouldn't, may not flinch at a gunshot. Uh, that they hear in the city that are used to concrete and asphalt, uh, have seen all kinds of awful stuff that doesn't really scare them very much. And you bring them up to the woods and they just become kids again. Mm -hmm. They're scared of the dark. 
They're scared of water. They're scared of animal sounds. Uh, they have trouble understanding why you can't have a bag of Cheetos in your tent in the woods. And a couple had to learn the hard way. Um, and uh, to see uh, this group of kids up there, uh, you literally watch this population become kids again. And it's uh, and it speaks to everything. Anecdotally, I'm just relaying everything that, you know, Nusheen has evidence <laughs> about, about, you know, the impact on mental health, the impact on creativity, um, relationship building. All these things happen easier in nature without a phone. Hmm. Nusheen, I want to ask you, how, a lot of people struggle with how much to tell children. I remember some eighth graders coming to me and they did a, a research project and they were very prepared and they looked at me and I looked at them and, and they're looking at me as a authority figure. And I didn't know how much to tell them because I think it's kind of dark. But so, you know, how do you talk to a 10 year old versus a 15 year old versus someone younger? You got to, how do you calibrate what you tell them? I, um, I've been thinking about this topic a lot and um, I've actually been drawing from the research that's done on trauma. Um, there's been research done after 9-11 and after really huge events on how to talk to kids about something very traumatic. Because I don't think we should take it lightly that we're telling children not only that we foresee the entire you know, change of ecosystem, but also that we don't really know what to do about it. I think that we have to do that in a developmentally appropriate way. What that research around trauma shows is that children do best when they think that they're part of something and when they have social support and when they know their elders are doing what they can and that they, um, they have a story to tell themselves about what's happening. And so I think for children zero to five, you have to recognize that there's very little separation between the external world and the internal world. And their relationship to a tree or an animal is one of intimate love. And so you really have to talk about the death of that animal in a way that recognizes that you're telling them something they love will be dying. As kids get older, I think you have to progressively give them more leadership in it. But just to wrap it up with um, you know, drawing from the literature on trauma, I think the really important thing is to not say, the world is ending and it's up to you to change it. I think <laughs> like because you're five and you have no power, right? I think the thing to say is, you know, yes, what you've heard is true and what you see is true. And my generation is going to do every single thing that we can. But then we actually have to do everything that we can. And what we don't get to will be up to you. Um, and if you have any ideas, I'll try my best to follow you and your lead. But to not like leave it up to them or not say, the world is ending, so you should recycle. Like, <laughs> I mean, it just it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. If you're just joining us, we're talking about connecting to nature at Climate One with our guest, Phil Ginsburg, General Manager of the Recreation and Parks Department in San Francisco, Nusheen Razani, Director of the Center for Nature and Health at the Children's Hospital in Oakland, California, and Rebecca Johnson, Citizen Science Lead at the California Academy of Sciences. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. 
Hi, this question is for Mr. Ginsburg. So I found your work with the youth um, at Camp Mather very interesting. Did you see any long-term benefits after they spent uh, such a long period in nature? Um, well, the benefits for us are we were able to engage kids in our system that that actually have come back year after year. They come back the second year as a peer leader, and, and several kids that have been in that program now actually work for us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we weren't really collecting data on these kids, and, and maybe at some point we should figure out a way to, mm -hmm. to, to do that. But just the mere fact that we have kids who... Uh, are still in our system and are now peer leaders and, and camp counselors is, is, is quite good. Rebecca and Nusheen talked about how do we get kids to sort of, how, how, do we, how do we get us all, but how do we get our next generation to, to kind of sort of care about the earth and, and really have a vested stake in making sure that we, you know, that we, we have nature and we have, have parks. And rather than telling kids what they can't do, we've, I think we've done a, 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 a pretty decent job of giving kids an opportunity to learn and grow and, and actually, you know, work um, in nature. Welcome to Climate One. Um, hello. So the earth has always been like an inter, always been a changing thing, you know, uh, for centuries. It's always changing. It never stays the same. And I think that's something that's really interesting. But when things like climate come up, there's always these issues, and I guess this is vague, but this is kind of for all three of you. What would be some things that we'd want to keep the same, like as our usage of technology and also balancing it out with like, nature and the, what you guys were talking about? I could take a stab at a way that nature, that technology is actually helping us in water conservation. We now use something called evapo sensors, which are, you know, this is basically an internet 2.0 technology that is a, actually able to measure the water content in soil so that we can irrigate much more precisely. Um, that's an example of technology being used to help us, you know, conserve. Uh, and we've, you know, there are probably a few other examples of that. But I, I do think that we have to be open to, uh, you know, um, building design changes, um, irrigation techniques change, land management, you know, techniques change um, with technology. And we have to be open to that as long as we understand what our values are, right? And our values are to try to conserve natural resources, um, to, to try to respond to some of the impacts of, of climate change. And again, in this era of, you know, uh, unfortunately, a very sedentary, disconnected generation, giving uh, the next generation of kids uh, a reason to be outside, to form community, um, and I, I guess kids and, and parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, what Nusheen said about you have to be there to kind of look at your child, I mean, that really resonated with mm -hmm. me because I, I have a busy job and I spend way too much time on my phone, <laughs> even though I love nature and I'm out in it all the time. Um, I think we have to get back to using our park system to create community. And, and I do think we should be open to ways that technology invites us to do that. Yeah, I would, I would just add that, um, you know, even though the work that, that we do on my team is, is we use an app and we use technology, I mean, it's all about community. I mean, I don't think I would be in this job or doing this work or care about it nearly as much if it was just about the technology. I mean, it's really about the people and connecting to people and finding ways to build 
a community around nature and nature connection for everyone, everyone who lives in the city, um, everyone who lives anywhere, and um, helping them use technology to learn more about the nature around them and to help kind of collectively generate the data that we all need at the scales, like global scales, to help um, solve these problems and help understand how biodiversity is changing. We have global data about climate and a lot of most other variables, but biodiversity data is really, really hard to get at that scale. And the only way we can do that is if people everywhere make and share observations. And then the flip, like other benefit is that then they're more connected to nature and hopefully through the work that we do can be more connected to each other wherever they live. Next question, welcome. So I know that spending a lot of time on screens can be bad for a growing growing brain, which my dad tells me a lot. <laughs> um, but can Ms. Rizani elaborate on what you said about seeing positive aspects to screen time and how that connects to knowing how much time to spend on screens and how much, how much time to spend outside? Yeah, so um, there was a large national study where they looked at screen time um, in kids and adolescents. And what they found is that there's a huge uptick in number of hours spent on screens at around middle school. And for kids age 14 to 17, sadly, you know, every hour that you're on a screen does increase your risk of anxiety or depression. Um, and so I think it's real. Um, it does seem that those uh, kids that spend more than seven hours a day, and that's a weekday, on screens tend to have like double the risk of anxiety or depression, which may be that kids who are depressed, sorry, need screens more than other kids. But um, I would say that going back to in the beginning when I was talking about, you know, basically how to live as a human, you need eight to 12 hours of sleep if you're a teenager. It can be up to 12. Um, you need to exercise. I mean, I can't even believe that I'm settling for an hour a day, but I would settle for an hour a day. And I tell people that you need to be out of doors in the sunshine for an hour a day. And if you think about the human animal, it's like the only animal that we allow to only be allowed outside for one hour a day, and we find that acceptable. But I think, you know, you need to be outside an hour a day. You need to um, have physical activity, and then you should be eating dinner with your family. There should be screen-free zones and screen-free times for families to interact with no screen. And then... You know, in terms of what to do online, I think there is some data that some of the social networking stuff is more correlated with um, anxiety, and I, I don't want to speak to that fully. Um, but, like, instinctively, what I think is, like, when I see my kids creating something or generating content, or if they can get good enough to code or actually be in a position of power when they're using the technology as opposed to just a consumer, I feel like that will be better for their mental health. We've been talking about the benefits of reconnecting with nature on Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests were Nusheen Razani, director of the Center for Nature and Health at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland, Rebecca Johnson, co-director of Citizen Science at the California Academy of Sciences, and Phil Ginsberg, General Manager of the San Francisco Recreation and Parks Department. Earlier, I talked with author Renee Lertzman and clinical psychologist Leslie Davenport and Bryant Welch. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Please help us get more people talking about climate change by giving us a rating or review. 
Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>